I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. GameStop continues to make headlines, not only due to the market frenzy, but perhaps more importantly, for the regulatory issues the volatility has raised. Among them, what is the role of social media in today's financial markets? And is the evolution of how we communicate once again changing the very balance of power that over the decades has shifted from retail investors to institutional ones? And what does that mean for questions like fairness, especially against the backdrop of long-standing and controversial practices like high-frequency trading? Well, to get to the bottom of it all, I have a treat for you today. Josh Mitz, a professor of law at Columbia who has researched both social media and market manipulation, and Patrick McCarty, a veteran of the podcast and former general counsel of the CFTC. And to help lead the conversation today, I'm delighted to welcome Kristen Johnson, the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Law at Emory. Together, they're putting their massive brain power together to dissect the changes in retail trading we're seeing and what social media means. For the little guy. Josh, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. And Patrick, welcome back. Thank you for having me as well. Josh, let's start with you. Uh, there are two different ways, I guess, to approach GameStop, right? I mean, on the one hand is the social media story, and we'll get into all that detail. Uh, but the one that's gained perhaps the most traction is the market structure question and the sense that it's not really working the right way for the little guy, especially when you think about how normal people invest their money. Uh, but you've written a lot on both. Um, maybe you can start us off on just a sense as to how this market structure story bleeds into uh, this particular dynamic and all that we've been reading about. Sure. I think it's really helpful to start with a massive change that we've seen in investment management over the last 10 to 20 years, which is really the rise of index funds. Individual retail investors have largely been told you should stay out of active trading in the markets because you're just better off putting your money in a 401k and letting someone else manage your capital for you. The problem is that that's left a lot of retail investors disconnected. And GameStop, GameStop arose as a kind of rebellion against the, the sense that Wall Street had taken control entirely of investing opportunities. In effect, what we saw was a, an organized protest, one that might have gone far too far in the other direction, but one that arose at its core out of a sense that retail investors were being systematically taken advantage of by Wall Street. Now... A lot of people read what has happened, and you describe it almost that way, Josh, in terms of an organized protest, an army of traders, David and Goliath, right? It's all kind of seen through this political lens. Is that a fair reading? We have to remember that for a decade now, what my research has shown is that retail investors have been the victims of tens of billions of dollars of price manipulation by hedge funds, particularly on the short side. I've documented thousands of cases where hedge funds targeted small and medium cap in particular public companies 
crashing stock prices only to see those prices reverse, sometimes as short as days later. Ultimately, the feeling around GameStop was, you know, GameStop is a company that's been targeted by the likes of, of short sellers and short activists. We are optimistic about the company. Now, that's where it started. It didn't end there, of course. And I think this shows the, the challenge on the one hand and the promise and potential of greater retail investment and participation in our markets. We have to get it right. And we need to get the right rules of the road to make sure that retail investors are ultimately protected. So, so Josh, I mean, it's kind of interesting here, right? Because we're talking about politics, right? And the question was, was one about, you know, you know, it's the balance of power, evolving. But it seems to me that, that that there are different definitions of like politics, right? There, there's the politics of the market and this this the struggle that's really evolved over time between retail investors and institutional investors. I mean, you know, the stock market itself has become much more of a of an institutional market uh, over over its history. But then there's this like larger question, right? You know, in society about politics and about over Overwhelming influence in economics and 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 in markets, you know. To what degree are the micro level market politics intersecting with these larger societal questions about fairness and and the little guy? You know, there's been a series of articles in the press about who benefits from the explosive increase in the stock market over the last 10, 20 years. And the answer is a very small segment of society. Uh, Depending on how you cut it, it could be the top 1%, the top 10%. So I think there is at its core a sense that uh, this isn't just about Wall Street being able to take advantage of it and crush the little guy. It's part of a broader story uh, in which the average American is left out of the gains that accrue to this small part of society. The question is, what's the best way to solve that problem? How do we address this growing inequality? I think from a psychological standpoint, this is a motivation. It can be carried to excesses. The real problem is the most valuable investment opportunities are not available to the ordinary retail investor. And that's, I think, what's at the core of of this frustration that many Americans feel. How does social media change how we think about market structure? So I, I think it goes to the way information disseminates in society. So there was a time when one would learn about investment opportunities from the pages of a newspaper, maybe from the evening news, uh, but the frequency was far slower than what we see today. Social media also allows many disparate individuals who would not ordinarily be in the same circle to comment on each other's views, to feed back uh, perspectives. And thus it creates the potential for the sorts of feedback loops. Whether or not those feedback loops are manipulative is is a really difficult question for the law, but it's changed the way trading happens. So against this political backdrop, is social media good or bad for retail investors, or is it really a a kind of a mixed picture? Up until now, retail traders had largely been unable to organize. And there are big questions as to whether this is a good thing, ultimately, for retail investors. I'm not coming down one way or or the other on that big picture question. But I think what this reflects is a deep-seated sense that the the deck has been stacked against us. Social media has provided an opportunity for retail investors to work together to achieve a goal. 
Now, whether that goal is the right one is an open question. Whether the law that we have protects these retail investors is a really difficult question, but it shows that times are changing and it is by and large driven by technology. Patrick, so maybe you can help us out here. Where exactly is Robinhood coming into the story? Um, it, it seems certainly that they're attracting as much attention as GameStop. Well, Robinhood has basically you know, made it very popular for people to trade. They've made it easy through a, uh, an app, which is very um, easy to download, intuitive. And as some people would say, it's uh, gamifying investing in stocks. Um, which is almost misleading um, the, the people, the retail investors who are using that. Plus, on top of that, Robinhood has zero commissions. So it's almost as if, well, it doesn't cost me five to 10 bucks to make a trade. So I can do this. So I think Robinhood has kind of like made it easier to invest, which I thought was a good thing. They've cut costs. That's a good thing as well. But it's, it's kind of lured people into doing things which they normally wouldn't do, I think is the, the argument. And the fact that they then pulled the rug out from under their customers without adequate notification in advance that they could do so is what is really getting most people upset. Now, there's a little bit of background there, Chris. Robinhood has a deal with Citadel, the hedge fund, to basically send their trades that are produced by their customers on Robinhood's apps to Citadel for execution. And this is what pays in part for no commissions on Robinhood trades. Citadel and is well known for basically shorting stocks, and they've just made an investment in Melvin Capital, which has apparently lost lots of money, almost a billion dollars, on shorting GameStop. So there's a question as to whether Robinhood it stopped its customers from trading on GameStop because it was hurting one of their business partners, Citadel. So essentially, Patrick, you're, you're suggesting there may have been a conflict of interest. Is that sure. right? Yep. Actually, Patrick, that's a great segue to a, a couple of questions, one of which might be uh, how the structure of the market has changed over the period of time that we're talking about and the acceleration of trading, right? So, so Patrick, I would I'd raise this question for you and then sort of a derivative of the same question for, for Josh, and, and that's sort of the role of um, automated trading and the role of high-frequency trading or other uh, trading excel or other uh, mechanisms to accelerate trading in markets and the extent to which that may have played a, a role here. I, I'm not aware of the fact that it was automated trading that actually caused the prices to, to jump like they did. So I, I don't know. Josh, are you familiar with that? I think we, we don't have all the facts yet. And so it would be, it would be speculative um, to try and unpack. I mean, this isn't actively being investigated according to press reports uh, as we speak. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, going back to the broader point, um, I, I agree completely with Patrick that two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, although so far there hasn't been public evidence of manipulation uh, that's been brought forward. I mean, nobody's been charged. Uh, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Uh, the real question is, I, I think, why? You know, why did, how did we get here? Uh, and one possible answer to that question uh, does go to the ever-increasing role of algorithmic and, and automated trading in our markets. 
Uh, and that is that, you know, take someone who's buying on the basis of, of whether it's a, a message board post or it's an article they're reading. Many times they have no idea that they're transacting against a far more sophisticated counterparty. This can happen any number of ways. You could be buying when the counterparty is selling, or thinking that, that the price is in some sense reflects that market consensus that Patrick was talking about. It could also be that you're getting a worse price because you might be a user of Robinhood and the prices you're getting are coming from Citadel or in the possibility three, you get locked out of the market in periods of high volatility. Each of these are in some sense at an at a, at a institutional level tied to the rise of algorithmic and high-frequency trading, for example, the rise of high-frequency market makers like Citadel. When people say that that this entire episode is one of market manipulation, I mean, you know, for, for our audience, which is pretty broad, like, what does that mean in practice? So what are they saying has happened and what would have to be proven in order to demonstrate market manipulation against this backdrop of, of, of social media? Well, under the securities laws, um, and the courts have been very clear, manipulation requires proof of intent. And that means that it's not just enough to have a positive view about a company. It's not just enough to get it wrong. We can get it wrong. We can overbid the price of GameStop hundredfold. But to be manipulation, there has to be an intent to, in the words of the law, induce other people to trade. Now, that is something that has to be proven. Uh, and it, it, it's often hard precisely because we're in an era of rapid technological change to prove that someone who placed a trade did so with that manipulative intent. Some of the things that were more interesting to me were basically Robin Hood getting whacked because of failure to disclose to their customers that they might actually pull the rug in terms of them being able to buy GameStop, Macy's, BlackBerry, and other things because of additional margin calls that they're getting from the clearinghouse. Now, I, I think the thing is, is that you look at that and you go, wow, there's a lot of things that you could look at here, but most people, and I'm going to defer to Josh on this, are saying they're not sure that there's actually stock manipulation that's been shown here and that it doesn't appear to be a pump and dump because there's nothing that we know about in terms of false information, they acting in concert. Again, it was well disclosed and covered by the press, so not sure that there's any real need on that. The only thing that seems to be a real problem is Robinhood and Robinhood not telling their customers, hey, we're going to stop letting you buy GameStop and other stocks. Did this impact what you thought about the congressional hearing and how that played out? I thought that the, that the big outtake here was going to be, we, we have to kill the hedge funds who short, or we really have to be upset with manipulation. And the big loser here was Robinhood and the failure to basically tell customers that they couldn't trade. I mean, did you think that was going to be the result of that hearing? I, I think politically, the Robinhood's role is a lot more salient because Manipulation cases are very fact specific, and so it's I think it's harder from a policy. This is my was my take of the hearing. From a policymakers can form a, a stronger consensus around the unfairness of discriminating against retail investors in some way or another, whether it's locking them out 
or whether it's, to Chris's point, the broader problem that most ordinary Americans don't have access to private capital markets or the ability to get in on the ground floor of a lot of, of companies where the value is created. So I think that as a, it has a certain salience for the average politician. I, I don't know, but that, that was my take of the hearing. Isn't this just letting the hedge funds and private money off the hook in the end and pointing a finger at what would have been, at least from their own perspective, the market actor that engaged uh, or, or at least launched a platform with the intention of democratizing markets or giving access to financial markets to people who had historically been excluded? Yeah, the one, the one thing that bothers me the most about this, though, is that Overall, I love markets. I think markets are, are intended to basically allocate resources if, if they function properly. And the people that are meant to basically regulate and make sure that things don't go wrong are the SEC. They actually, the exchanges themselves have an obligation. I was surprised by two things here. One was that the New York Stock Exchange stopped trading in GameStop as well as some of these other stocks multiple times. But it didn't stop the, the fact that you saw this huge run-up. And I was kind of thinking, well, shouldn't the SEC have said, you know, tapped the New York Stock Exchange on the shoulder and said, you know, it seems to be you're not being very successful in terms of stopping the volatility. Maybe we need to have a longer stop than just a couple of minutes. There's an interesting question to whether volatility alone is is enough. And and. I actually think there are systemic harms to volatility, but my, my, some of my colleagues who've written in this area are not as convinced uh, because this, this is idiosyncratic and can be diversified away, uh, whereas macro may act, volatility may be much more of a concern. Um, but, but to the point about the trading halts, I mean, there's also an enforcement problem, and we didn't get to talk about this, but you know, I think enforcement is very slow relative to the technological innovation. So what you could imagine a world where the SEC, not the exchanges, but the SEC's enforcement staff are plugged into data scientists. And in real time, they're identifying potentially fraudulent or manipulative behavior. And, and that would be a basis for interfe- intervening. It would not be just volatility, but it would be, here's a concerning pattern. Here's a spoofing pattern, if you will, instead of, you know, or here's a, a, a cross-market manipulation pattern. If they were to catch that in real time and intervene, it'd be a totally different regulatory paradigm. Um, we don't have anywhere near the level of data analytics in the SEC, much less real-time data analytics. But we could see that happening one day. Exchanges are self-regulatory organizations that are required to basically enforce their rules and make sure there's an orderly market. Something tells me that um, perhaps this is something that they should do more about as opposed to relying on the SEC to come in and whack for them. That That's my view. Secondly, and this was my point earlier, is basically, if you like markets and you think markets are actually doing the right thing and they're helping allocate resources and showing you true prices, this example of GameStop and other things completely undermines what would be retail investor confidence in the ability for the market to actually be fair. That would, I mean, the fact that you bid it up to, 470 is from $17 is you know, there's something wrong here. There's nothing, their business hasn't changed. So I, I, to me, it's like, I think you're undermining the basis for the stock market. If you don't make it work 
correctly. And so if you have people shorting or people pushing it up, it's bad either way because it undermines people's, I guess, confidence in the system. Do the markets really work? And the answer is basically looking at that, it tells you, no, it doesn't. But I think that's the motivation for the protest. I mean, that's the motivation behind the protest, right? To establish that, in fact, um, this concept of true price isn't, doesn't exist. And if it does exist, the true price happens at some point well before retail investors ever have an opportunity to participate in markets. So as Josh was describing earlier, that opportunity to get in on the ground floor and participate where the real value is being achieved in terms of the distribution of stock happens even before the first day of trading in an IPO. So Patrick, I want to follow up on that right away um, and just sort of think through, as you've described here so far, the role of the SEC, what you think the CFTC uh, might have to say about this story and what, what the angle of the CFTC's angle of the story might be here as well. Well, it, it's funny because you know, there was this less well-known, but I guess there was a lot of activity in the silver market. And there was talk about a silver squeeze. And um, Reddit had a lot of conversations on Wall Street bets about exactly the same issue. And in fact, you, you saw the price of silver go up and it hit a almost $30 um, an ounce, which is its highest in in eight years. But that was seems to have been a short-lived squeeze because it actually wasn't a squeeze at all. It's kind of an interesting thing. The, the, the acting chairman at the CFTC, Russ Benham, put out a statement talking about we're monitoring the um, silver markets. We're talking with uh, the exchanges and the clearinghouses. We're keeping an eye and we're talking with the other regulators. You know, the silver market is so much bigger than GameStop and Macy's and others, 1.7 trillion. And second thing is, is that you can, you can take positions in silver through futures contracts, through buying in the physical market, and then you can also buy ETFs, the silver ETFs that are listed on the stock exchanges. And you can also do options plays on those ETFs. So there's uh, an awful lot of places that people could go to do things. And in fact, they were successful in pushing the price up, but it still only went up from about $22 at the end of November last year to being $26, hold on, $24.50, I think, mm-hmm. today. So it's it's not really, it jumped up to you know $29 and change. But I think the thing is, is that the silver market showed that it's not nearly as, I guess, manipulable as, you know, some of the equities are that we're talking about here. So I think it's kind of an interesting situation. And there's been a history of manipulations in the silver market, the very famous hunt manipulation and others. But I I tell you, they've been watching this. I think it's not really been nearly as bad as what you saw with GameStop and some of the other stocks, you know, Macy's and BlackBerry. But it, CFTC does have a role. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I think the derivatives question with respect to the, these issues in general might be tremendously interesting to explore. As you were describing um, derivatives in the commodities market, we, could, we saw activity um, in the derivatives market for the equity stock, uh, for, the, for GameStop's common stock. Uh, so certainly something to keep our eye on overall. I think you're right. There might be many different pools to play in, if you will, for the market participants who are uh, engaged in 
what we might describe as, and I think Josh mentioned earlier, organized protest, right? Um, which uh, if we think back to that language, sort of very specifically, the, the kinds of motivations and interests that, mo that uh, inspired participants in, in the social media communities uh, to get engaged in markets. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For all the talk of the novelty of the issues brought forth by GameStop, the underlying drivers are some that have long animated our capital markets. Traders close to markets and with their ears to the latest events have always had advantages over their far-flung competitors and even investors. And technological changes have always changed the structure of our markets, from the invention of the telegraph to the introduction of phone banks on trading floors. The difference, of course, is speed. Not just the speed and the advantage of speed brought by the power to quickly execute trades, but also the speed of communication and the ease to organize collective market actions on Twitter, Facebook pages, and of course, Reddit. Against this backdrop, I think it can't be a surprise that Congress is looking to revisit the rules and assumptions regarding this increasingly new and topsy-turvy world of trading. The question will, of course, be just where to start and whether or not the right choices we made or the digital infrastructure supporting commerce are themselves quickly evolving. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. -M -M -E We'd love to hear from you.